0: Let me invite you now to grab a Bible and open it to the Book of Jonah, and we'll continue our study of that. And we're gonna I'm gonna read you five verses out of chapter three in a moment. But I want to say two things. Uh, First, one that is important, and the other that is very important. First of all, uh, brother and sister in Christ, you realize that we are facing another election here, statewide election, uh, countywide election. I think it's August the fifth. I do know that that early voting starts July the thirteenth. Now, the thing that you may not know is that you have three of your fellow church members who are running for very significant public office. Um, George Chisholm, who is running for the county uh, treasurer where you send all your, your uh, real estate taxes, uh, Wayne Mashburn, who is running for the county um, recorder of deeds, and then David Lenore, who is running for county mayor. Um, uh, Wayne was in the first service, but I saw David in this, in this service. David, would you stand up? That is David Lenore, and he is running for county mayor. Um, George, are you in the room? They all have to speak at all these places. You can sit down now. Uh, um, but, but guys, um, is, is David a Democrat or Republican? I don't care. Uh, the Republican Party is not my hope. The Democratic Party is not my hope. My hope is found in the fact that these brothers know Jesus Christ and they have residing within them God, the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, the, the, the spirit that can grant wisdom that they do not now possess. Guys, um, they're as broken as we are, but they are people who have the same Christ as we do. Why would we sit on the, li- on the sidelines and let this go by? Folks, this is not so much of a public plea as it is a church family life plea. Three of your fellow members are running for county office. You must not sit this one out. You cannot. I don't care whether you vote for a Republican or a Democrat. They're not my hope. But I do want you to vote for people who have the Holy Spirit residing within them, and I know three of them. David Lenore, Wayne Mashburn, and George Chisholm. So I do hope that you'll take that seriously. Uh, I'm going to be in Baku when when early voting starts, but the the election, I'm going to get back in time to vote, and I hope you will too. And remember, these are men who have had to give the same testimony of grace in their lives that you have. How about that? How about that? We complain about our government. It's just not good. good, You've got three born-again uh, indwelt by the Holy Spirit brothers that are about to or um, possibly be voted into office. Go get that done. We must. We must. And um, I hope you'll take that to heart. Now, that's the important thing. Here's the really important thing. Guys, I was in uh, Atlanta all week at a church meeting and, and um, really profited. I enjoyed it. But um, something took place here this past week that I did not get to participate in, and it was called VBS. And I talked to my wife three or four times a day, and she would bring me up to date. And I can't tell you how impressed I am by what you pulled off. I know it was hard. I know you're exhausted. I know that there were some things that didn't go exactly as we wanted them to go. But what you did was so impressive guys about 200 of the 500 kids that came were from the inner city and they were um, they were a challenge Uh, they didn't exactly do everything that we wanted them to do we get that but what did you expect what did you expect living in a fallen world but guys here's what we know we did for five straight days we attempted to define the gospel more and more clearly. And you did that. I know teachers that spent hours, one over 20 hours online, looking for content, looking for illustrations, looking for help. Um, yeah, I know that it might, it might not have been perfect, but what you did, and some of you, you know. Fifth and sixth grade boys are always a difficulty because they, they're thinking it's just not cool enough to be in VBS anymore. We had 53 of them taught by three faithful men. Um, we had old women sliding down 32-feet uh, water slides, uh, Karen Jordan being one of them. Uh, Laughter and why does that not surprise any of us? Um, but, but guys, uh, one lady said, "You know, I've been a part." She's new to Gracey Bay, and she said, "I've been a part of VBSs before." She said, "They're nothing more than suburban babysitting," but not this one. She said, "This was ministry." Yes, yes, it was. Demanding, you bet. Costly, you bet. But done well and redemptively, bless God, yes. Now, maybe BBSs are passe. Maybe they're an anachronism. anachronism. I don't know. I just know that ministry took place here in the lives of 500 kids because you worked your little heinies off. And I want to applaud you. Good job, folks. I don't know what's going to happen next year and all that business. I just know that some very significant spiritual stuff went on here. We didn't do this to babysit. We did this to broadcast, and you did it. And I, I, I couldn't be more thrilled and grateful to be called your pastor. Job well done, folks. Now, Follow now as I read five verses that are inspired. And this is the only inspired part of what you're about to hear. But this is going to begin at verse 1 of Jonah chapter 3. And I'll read through verse 5. It reads like this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it in the the message that I will tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them, to the least of them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this word endures forever. You know, one of the critiques that people often make of me is that um, he tends to be kind of on the dramatic end of the spectrum. Rather histrionic, he is. Well, uh, guilty as charged. But, folks, I don't know how you could, be, you could read something more dramatic than what I just read you. This is, a, this is quite a scene. This is a, a city-state, a, a major diplomatic center, converted. A, a, a revival of national proportion breaks out in this city. Um, now... As you, as you see that, what lover of souls wouldn't take joy in, in hearing of something like this? What, what Christian wouldn't want to see a repeat? Maybe here in Germantown, what lover of Jesus wouldn't want to ask, how did that happen? I mean, we would love to see it repeated. So how did this happen? Guys, there's something that stands out in this passage, at least for me. And I hope you saw it. If you didn't, I'm going to point it out to you in a minute. But there's something that just is that forms the the fabric of this event that's being described here. Gang evangelism is at the center of the Great Commission. You know that. That means that evangelism must be pretty important to Jesus. We we all know that. We all agree about that. But how then is evangelism to be done? Um, Is it via programs, like Evangelism Explosion? Or the four spiritual laws, or the Romans Road, or one verse evangelism? Or, or how about lifestyle evangelism as we live out a commitment to Christ before a watching world? Or maybe even social justice, where we emphasize the, uh, the inequities and so that we try to balance those out. Or, or maybe you may have never heard of this one before, but 30 years ago it was big. John Wimber, promoted what he called signs and wonders and said evangelism is always accompanied and attended by signs and wonders. Guys, I I applaud all of those efforts, and and the zeal behind those efforts shames me. I and, and probably our church have significant guilt stemming from our guilty silence. Our, our lack of aggression in carrying out the, the, the gospel outside of the walls of this church, a la the Mormons. I would say, I think there's one exception. Our athletic ministry is one exception where that, that, that indeed they are carrying the gospel outside of these four walls. But folks, it's those Mormons who have made it harder to do evangelism because of their uninvited unwanted visits. And so people have built moats almost around their homes. I, have, I had one attack me in my driveway yesterday. And by the time the conversation was over, he called me a blasphemer because I didn't buy his product. But because of these unwanted, un, uninvited guests, we we lock our doors. We don't want those people coming back anymore. And so, So because of those those kinds of efforts evangelism has become more difficult to do and guys we could talk about that for hours but what i want you to take a look at is our text and i want to point out this which if you didn't see it when i read it what seems to be the lowest common denominator the assumption that is being made while this this story is being discussed and it, it's, it's, the, it's the backdrop of any evangelistic effort, or at least it was in this one. Notice, verse 1, the word of the Lord. Verse 2, you go call out the message I will tell you. Verse 3, um, so Jonah arose and went according to the word of the Lord. And then finally, you get his message in verse 4, yet 40 days, the message that God gave him, which consists, by the way, of five Hebrew words. The message that God gave him, five Hebrew words. Do you see it? The thing that s- seems to form the structure, the backbone, the centerpiece of all of this revivalistic occurrence here in Nineveh had to do with the faithful proclamation of a message that God put into the mouth of his prophet or the Word of God. Guys, here's my point. The whole destiny of Nineveh in in light of eternity depended upon the reception of and exposure to the word of the Lord. Do you believe that? I'll say it again. The whole destiny of Nineveh in light of eternity depended upon The exposure to and reception of the Word of the Lord. Guys, next week we're going to take a look at the message itself, which I said consists of five Hebrew words. But for now, I want you to see in this brief paragraph the centrality of God's Word in any evangelistic effort. If any conversion is going to take place on a minimal scale or a maximal scale, it is going to require that at its center is a message that God gave, God defined, God architected, God entrusts nothing else. Folks, whatever went on 4,000 years ago in Nineveh, this much we can know for sure. Men were awakened by the Holy Spirit through the proclamation of a message authored by God and delivered by man. It was a man's voice that they heard, But behind that voice stood the message that God instructed. Folks, do do you realize that? Do you realize that when I stand back here and I get this right, and you know, that's iffy. (laughs) You might want to make sure and check it out. But if I get this right when I'm standing behind this pulpit and and handling this book, if I get it right, well, the sound that you may hear that goes into your auditory canal may be my voice. But what's behind it is the very mind of God. So if you leave here and you say, Well, I don't like him. He's a little loud. Well, I'm not real comfortable with him because he's a little dramatic. Okay, I'm guilty. But if I get this right and you turn your back on it, then what you've rejected is not the voice of a preacher. You've rejected the voice of God. Well, Dr. Young, I mean, yeah, we all know that. I mean, that's, uh, you're just stating the obvious. <laughs> Am I? Really? Guys, it seems to me that the attack on this book over the last century or more has been so successful that the church, the, the, people like us, often does all that we can to soften the message, to broaden the message, to relativize the message, to liberalize the message, to pluralize the message, to minimalize the message, to marginalize the message. We are so unsure about whether or not this is even true. That what we do with the message is that we alter it. We uh, clean it up. We polish it up a little bit so that it won't be so offensive to the listeners. Let me give you an example. Did you happen to notice what the message was that God gave to Jonah It's only five Hebrew words. It's about seven English. But he says, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Do you know what his message was, ladies and gentlemen? Judgment. Judgment is coming to Nineveh. But I'm not sure we believe that anymore. I mean, we've been told for so many years that hell doesn't exist. And that if it does, it's only temporary. Rob Bell told us that. We've heard things like, well, uh, you know, (laughs) yeah, I know what that says. But, you know, a God of love would never judge all those innocent people in Nineveh. Or um, my God would never do something. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I don't give two hoots and a holler about what your God would do. I don't care about the God of the liberal. I don't care about the God of the philosopher. I don't care about the God of the Muslim. What I want to know is what this God will do. But we have been so influenced by the attacks on this book that we're not really sure what the message even is. You know, the church—so much of her is running scared, having sought to devise different methods and a, and a different message, so that we don't have to suffer the scorn and the, and the wrath of the culture. You know what's um, what's going on now? Maybe you read about it online. It's called revoicing. It's taking a particular social issue and. They're trying to revoice it. Why? I thought it was already voiced. But we are so unsure about the quality of the message contained in this book that we have the audacity to think that we can revoice it and make it more palatable. I can just see Jonah now as God meets him on dry land right after he got spit up by the the whale. And uh, You did notice, don't you, that he never tells him the message until he gets to Nineveh. But let's just say he's got the message and he's walking to Nineveh and he's thinking, now, how am I going to say this in such a way that Nineveh doesn't get offended? How can I offer this same message, you know, with a similar content, but, but, you know, I just need to revoice it. Ladies and gentlemen, you are engaged in something that maybe not, might not be revoicing, but we have lost confidence in the overall message of this book. Gang, p- please don't mishear me. um, I, I, I am very well aware that it is the Holy Spirit of God and him alone who grants eyes to see and ears to hear. But once he does that, what is it that he wants those ears to hear? He wants them to hear the book that he wrote. Folks, what does he use to inform men of their need and the remedy to meet that need? What does he use? He uses the book he wrote. Guys, he says that several places, but I, I, I just we have time for me to read you just one. This is found in the book of Jeremiah. Listen to this two verses. Let the prophet who has a dream let, tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What is straw in common with wheat? declares the Lord. Is not my word like a fire? declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? No, we prefer the dream. Did you you hear what he said? What what does a dream, straw, have to compare with my word? Wheat. Because it's my word that's like a fire. It's my word that's like a hammer that crushes up bricks into, I mean, rocks into small pieces. There's a statement, a famous one in Isaiah chapter 1 where, where Isaiah invites his audience. He says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Over what do they reason? The Wall Street Journal? No. The object of the reasoning has to do with the claims and the, and the assertions found in God's Word. Folks, evangelism is a confrontation. It's a confrontation between me and an unbelieving... No, it's a confrontation between an unbelieving world and the truth contained in this book. Not me. The confrontation is not between me and the unbelieving world. No, no. The confrontation is between the unbelieving world And the claims made in this book rightly represented by people like us. But once you get to the point where you're ready to revoice, to clean up, to modify, eliminate, all those confrontations, we got rid of them And we've never seen a Nineveh converted since. You know, I think it's worthy of note that uh, Jonah is told to get on with it. Get going. Uh, And I'll tell you what you have to say when you get there. And he has not given the slightest hint as to how Nineveh will respond. Because that's just not the issue. The issue is, Jonah, get over there and I'll tell you what to say. And you just tell them what I told you to tell them without revoicing it without modifying it. Guys, there's only one message that Jonah has to deliver, and he has no right nor authority to speak any other message. And every true representative of Christ is in the same position as Jonah, armed with a message knowing not of the outcome. Now let me add one more thought and I'm done. If you were living in Nineveh and you were one of the listeners to this strange prophet that was walking through your streets, screaming out five Hebrew words, there's several things that you've got to decide. You've got to decide, first of all, is it important? Secondly, is this true? Third, is that guy reliable? My friends, you have to answer those same three questions today. Um, you've got to ask Is what I'm hearing? Important is what I'm hearing true, and is that guy reliable? And if you answer yes to those, then the only sane option of response you have is one similar to the response you see recorded in Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. If you listen to all this and you say, well, yeah, yeah, I, you know, uh, uh, that's important, what he's saying up there. It's pretty important. You know, I get that, you know. <laughs> uh, and, and, uh, and, and I think it's true. I think it's true. And, um, and I think if that guy's reliable, I mean, you know, I think so. here and do nothing? My friend, may I say this gently? You have lost your mind. If this is important, and this is true, and he's reliable, and you do nothing about that, You are bordering on insanity. You know, folks, um, in this book, I see my sin on every page, but I also see the remedy for my sin on every page. And you must embrace them both my sin and the remedy for my sin which is Christ in him crucified and if you do that this book then becomes the instrument by which I am remade chipping away at all that baggage that I brought into the kingdom Because you see, there is such power in these words. And if I got them right, what you've heard today is the voice of God. You know, uh, speaking of the power in those words, just an example. You know, in John, 7, in John 11, uh, Jesus comes to the home of Mary and Martha because their brother Lazarus had died. And so the two women take him out to where he's buried, and, and um, he stands before Lazarus' tomb and he weeps, you might recall. And then he says this Lazarus, come forth. You know why he stuck that Lazarus in there, don't you? Because had had he not identified the one to whom he was speaking, the whole cemetery would have been emptied because of the come forth. Because there is such power behind those words. The same power that's behind those. You know, years ago, there used to be a bumper sticker I had not seen it in a while. Maybe I'm aging myself, which takes a while, but uh, there used to be a bumper sticker, and I bet you some of you have seen the bumper sticker, and it went like this. It said, um, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Well, yes, it's settled. But it's settled not because you believe it. It's settled whether you believe it or not. It's settled. Because God said it. And here's what He said, or one of the things that He said Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Is that true? Is it important? Is that guy reliable? If you answered yes, and do not embrace this Savior, my dear friend, you have lost your mind. Our Father, um, I do pray that you will use your word as fire and as a chisel, that you would break up stony hearts and that you would light a fire within the breast and souls of each listener here, and that you would use your word to convert many, that you would use what we do here to introduce people to the only option there is as a solution for their sin. And Father, guard us as we proceed in this ministry that we not fall prey to a culture that despises our message and yet it is the only hope they have. If we love them, we will remain faithful to this message. Would you enable us and allow us the privilege of doing that very thing? If you brought people here this morning, Father, who have not yet met our Savior, would you convince them? Because I can't. Would you convince them that what they've heard is true, that it's important, and the message they heard is trustworthy, and they must embrace it? Do that for Jesus' sake. Amen.